This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 48. Today we're speaking with Steve Nichols about his book, Jesus Made in America. Welcome to Christ the Center Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today in the studio James Dalzell, who's a PhD student at Westminster Theological Seminary. He just finished his comprehensive exams, and we're excited, waiting for him to get his dissertation proposal approved. James, what are you planning to write on? Is it ecofeminism and the implications for a Trinitarian government? No, I'm I'm going to leave ecofeminism alone. To I'll, I'll leave that for Steve Nichols' next book. Okay. And I'm I'm hope I'm hoping to deal with doctrine of God and particularly uh, the doctrine of simplicity and austerity. Excellent. We're really looking forward to that and hearing from you in the future. So congratulations, James. We're all happy for you. If you'd like to send James a note, you can email us at mail at reformedforum.org. We also have with us Nick Batzig, who's interim pastor at Christ the King. PCA in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. He's calling us from, is it Savannah, Georgia today, Nick? Yes, sir. I'm in Savannah. Excellent. We also have uh, Jeff Waddington, who's teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, and I'm buried under Blue Book exams. <laughs> they keep Lots you warm of... at night? Oh, they do. <laughs> A lot of it's that time of year, time for exams yeah. and papers, and uh, Jeff's grading many of them for the courses he TAs for. <laughs> <laughs> and our uh, our special guest today, we have Stephen J. Nichols, who's research professor of Christianity and culture at Lancaster Bible College and graduate school. We had him a few episodes ago to talk about his book, Getting the Blues, but today we're really excited to talk about his recent work, Jesus Made in America: A Cultural History from the Puritans to the Passion of the Christ. How are you doing, Steve? It's good to have you. Oh, great. Thanks for having me back. I actually thought we were going to do my book, um, Ecofeminism, Other Voices, and Chasing After the Goddess, but uh, <laughs> I guess we'll do Jesus uh, Made in America instead. You're going to sell a lot more of that book, though. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. We are, we're really uh, interested because this book is great. I mean, it's, a, it's full of uh, – it's a, it's a church history, so to speak, uh, of Jesus in American culture and what we've done to him <laughs> and to the message uh, throughout our, our, our brief history. Uh, but first, we want to mention any uh, new books. Uh, Jeff, we talked earlier already that we've dealt with most of these in uh, in the Reformed Media Review. If you haven't subscribed to that, you can find it at reformedforum.org slash RMR, or you can just go to reformedforum.org and find it. And we've tried to split out our recent book discussion into a separate uh, podcast, a separate show, and you can subscribe to that as well. And the reason we do that is sometimes we do these interviews ahead of time and uh, we're not able to provide you uh, with up-to-date uh, information on new books and stuff. So uh, if you'd like to get the book talk, uh, most of that's going to happen over there. But Nick, you also wanted to mention a couple of other Steve, uh, other books by Steve uh, before we get started in Jesus Made in America, right? Yes, we want to encourage our listeners to get a copy of Steve's book, Pages from Church History, which is a short uh, little a uh, compilation of basically um, uh, profiles of certain figures throughout church history, Polycarp, um, uh, Augustine, Anselm, and a, a good bit about Luther. It is a great volume for anybody to read. I think in in looking at all the church history books I had to look at for in preparation for ordination exams, this is... Um, this is probably the most enjoyable book I've read, and I mean that. Um, Nick Needham, I think, whoever wrote 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, the three-volume set, that's also a good set, but it's, it's, it's uh, dauntingly, you know, it's, it's a huge set. So this is a great volume, and I just really want to encourage our listeners to get a copy um, yeah. and read, read up. There's a lot of great—it's well-written, and there's a lot of great profiles in there. We uh, we used the book in Ringo's in our officer training program. So for about uh, eight yeah eight weeks, 
we we used uh, Steve's book, and uh, it was very useful, very useful in terms of a general overview of important figures in church history. So go get it. Excellent. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to mention, James? You uh, were talking to me before that you've been reading Reformed or uh, Concise Reformed Dogmatics. Conref dog, as you yeah. put it. Conref dog, yeah. I th- and I think, yeah, I think Concise Reform Dogmatics, the uh, Van Gendron and Vellema volume from PNR, um, which has been mentioned on this show before, and I hope on the Reform Media Review to do a, a somewhat uh, more extended discussion with you in the very near future. Um, but I, I think this will be, this will be attain the status of a go-to volume uh, in conservative reform circles. And with its status will also probably come its nickname, the Con Ref Dog, which I've been told is the abbreviated form used at WTS Books, to distinguish it from the four-volume Bob Inc., which is the Bav Ref Dog. Uh, So the Con Ref Dog, the Concise Reform Dogmatics, is really an excellent volume. I'm, I'm impressed with their awareness of late 20th century, uh, mostly European scholarship. Um, Again, controversy always gives the church uh, an opportunity to restate the Orthodox faith uh, in in fresh ways, Um, and I think there's a lot of fresh expression in this volume. Though written in 92, it really is a a, a timely work of theology articulating timeless truth, I guess we could say it that way. So uh, I hope to discuss that more with you, but that's my, my short plug right now. Mm. There's a lot of good material on Barton specific, right? It yes, they're, they're clear. They, have a, they do a good job of interpreting some of the sometimes difficult thinkers, Pannenberg, Bart, Moltmann, others, uh, huh. and translating that into language and expression that is, is understandable and setting that into a context of a scriptural discussion as over against maybe a more traditional Reformed approach. Mm. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to hearing from that. Um, again, you can find that in the Reform Media Review in the future. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to mention? We wanted to uh, mention Steve's uh, forthcoming uh, Yes, book. from Crossway. Ancient, yes, Ancient Word and Changing Worlds, which is due out, I think, on March 31st, 2009. Mm-hmm. It's on the Doctrine of Scripture in the Modern Age. Uh, Crossways. Uh, now, is, is that written, co-written with Eric Brandt? Yeah, that is. Uh, Eric is at uh, Wheaton now. He's uh, doing his master's work there at Wheaton, and he was he was one of my students and was just a great help to me in a lot of my books. And so I sort of uh, graduated him up to uh, uh, putting him on the cover. So <laughs> excellent. And what can we look forward to in this book, real uh, briefly? I'm sure we'd like to talk about it in depth when it comes out. But sure, uh, sure. yeah. Yeah, just a quick sketch. I had done this book for Crossway called For Us and For Our Salvation, and in that book I sort of looked at uh, the way Christology got developed in the early church. So in talking with the Crossway folks, we were thinking about some more books in that vein that would sort of look at uh, a particular doctrine and the way a particular doctrine gets shaped at a particular moment in the church. And there's been, uh, maybe as you guys know, a little interest in the doctrine of Scripture recently, so uh, we that was... Uh, book we thought of doing. So there's a chapter on inspiration, and then a chapter on inerrancy, and then a chapter on interpretation and recent trends in hermeneutics. And then there are intervening chapters that have uh, sources and primary texts. And pretty much we start with the Princetonians, middle of the 19th century, and move right up to uh, right up to a number of the controversies, uh, you know, of this decade. Excellent. We definitely look forward to that. We'd also yeah. recommend uh, everyone pick up a copy of uh, Dr. Beale's uh, new book um, from uh, Crossway as well, uh, The Erosion of Inerr- Inerrancy in Evangelicalism. Notice how I said evangelicalism. That's right. You <laughs> said uh, it right, brother. You can uh, listen to episode 47 to, to pick up on our inside joke. Uh-huh. But <clears throat> that book is out now, and... Uh, it's an excellent book as well. Uh, it's a it's a reprisal, so to speak, or a, a republication of several articles that Dr. Beale has written, uh, with some additional material. Uh, so there's there's a lot of good good material coming out now on the uh, Reformed doctrine of Scripture uh, and inerrancy in particular, and uh, it's 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 welcome. So uh, we we uh, look forward to people picking up those books and engaging in the issue. Is there anything else? I think that's it. Well. We today are going to be speaking about Jesus Made in America. It's published uh, 
who, oh crud, who published it? IVP. It's IVP. Yeah, IVP. <laughs> Sorry, I almost said Crossway. I don't want to give them credit yeah. here because they didn't publish it. Intervarsity. Oh, Intervarsity Press. But this book is really interesting, Nick. You uh, mentioned it before um, in uh, the last time we talked, uh, we spoke with Steve uh, on getting the blues. But this book has been a help to you, I know. Uh, do you want to sketch out just briefly what you really enjoyed about this book and get us started, Nick? Sure. Um, I bought the book for its hip and cool cover because it has a good design <laughs> on the front. So, Steve, whoever designed this, they did you a great service, brother. I know. Wasn't it great? I, I see a line of T-shirts coming out of this. It does. Know, it looks like, like a baseball shirt. It'd be awesome. It is great. That was classic. Um, but, no, seriously, I find this book very helpful for pastors um, because – I think that we can be so um, we can be so aloof to the issues of how culture sees Jesus that it actually hurts in our evangelism. And I don't know, Steve, if you purposed at all writing this, if you were thinking, hey, this can be useful in the way we interact with people in telling them about the biblical Jesus. But I thought that um, I thought that it's very helpful to see this progression, as you put it on the front, from the Puritans to the Passion of Christ. Nice alliteration there. Um, so, uh, what what was your purpose in in writing this, and what what were you hoping to accomplish? Uh, sure. Well, I'm a, I'm actually a student of Daryl Hart, so you know I obviously have an interest in critiquing evangelicalism. If I'm a student of Daryl Hart, but uh, <laughs> but as the book sort of progressed, I took it more than just um, just an analysis, just a critique. I did want to have a prescriptive element to it, and I'm, I'm really appreciative that you picked up on the um, sort of evangelistic, not so much that the book itself, I think, is evangelistic, but that there's a, a sort of underlying evangelistic impulse there in the book. Because yeah. I think you, know, you see so many sort of portraits of Christ or portraits of Christianity that are put forth by Christians. And part of you just wants to say, that's not Christ. <laughs> that's not Christianity. And so uh, part of writing the book was for uh, an evangelical constituency. But I was also looking at a sort of a broader audience to sort of poke fun at ourselves, but also with a way of saying, you know, there's a better way here uh, right. to think about Jesus. And and whether it's in music or politics or movies or trinkets, that's probably the worst uh, the, the sort of commodities uh, that are out there. Uh, Jesus gets fairly fairly distorted in a lot of those uh, pictures. So, so the book does have some a lot of analysis of that, and there's some funny stories in there because we're just comical as evangelicals. But I also was angling for a little bit of prescription there. So appreciate your your mentioning that. Yeah, well, I mean, I thought it was a, a very informative book, too. I mean, I did not know the history of Mason Weems. I think I had heard of several of his books, and you know how you really explain that you believe that he was responsible largely, I think, for for Christianizing past presidents of the U.S.? Is that pretty much what you were trying to point out? Yeah, you know, the, the book sort of has this historical sweep, so uh, the first four chapters especially sort of take us up to the 1900s, and then the next four chapters sort of roam the 20th century. But I think it's really important when you're doing sort of contemporary cultural analysis of whether it's just American culture or American evangelicalism, I think it's really important to root that cultural analysis in some historical understandings. Because a lot of these things do trace back, and one of the really interesting ways that this traces back is in the area of politics and especially American presidents. And, you know, you can, you can find the websites out there, the whole Christian America uh, sort of idea. And in many ways, I find that just a whole puzzling sort of enterprise. But, um, but one of the things I find really helpful there is the way that that shapes what many call the American civil religion. And I think when you begin to look at what was done with the presidents um, and the founders, you can begin to see how uh, what was really shaped there was a very generic Christianity, but certainly not an orthodox Christianity by any stretch. And right. this fellow, uh, Mason Weems, was an Episcopalian uh, a priest who was also a biographer, and he wrote these biographies of Washington that were wildly popular in the early 19th century. And um, 
uh, he's the one who gave us the legend of the cherry tree and Washington chopping down the cherry tree and couldn't tell right. a lie, you know. And, but the classic is his biography of Franklin. And Franklin, you know, was a total uh, Aryan and right. all of his life and has this great letter to Ezra Stiles, just outright denying the deity of Christ. Right. Um, Weems has Franklin dying. And as he's dying, there's a picture of Jesus on his mantle. And Franklin looks at the picture of Jesus, and that's his evangelical deathbed conversion. Right. <laughs> so it's just not grounded in any fact whatsoever. And so Weems has sort of slipped off the, the map, but everybody was reading his biographies in the early 19th century. And that's what began to shape a lot of these conceptions of uh, not just the American presidents, but of an American Christian identity. So. Right. Well, I thought also that it was interesting that you include in chapter four, Jesus, hero for the modern world, and you deal with the Harry Emerson Fosdick, Machen, and Van Dyke yes. issues. Yeah. And, you know, that same kind of liberalism you find in Franklin, you find that again surfacing in the church, in the Presbyterian church. And I know the guys here that are in the OPC probably uh, would be very appreciative of this. I thought it was interesting that you came at it looking at the Van Dyke Machen issue at the beginning rather than just jumping to the Fosdick, yeah, shall, the, yeah. shall the fundamentalist win, which is usually, you know, becomes the center focus. Um, what led you to talk about the Van Dyke issue? Well, you know, here's another name that has sort of slipped from us, but at the time he was a very popular author. And uh, actually what challenged me to put him in there was that his book, The Other Wiseman, well, he wrote many books, but his one very popular book was called The Other Wiseman. And uh, that was recently reprinted. And while I was sort of in the throes of research for the book, I was trolling the shelves at Barnes & Noble, and there was a whole stack of reprints of The Other Wiseman. <laughs> so, um, so I looked at that. Yeah, early on, you know, Van Dyke was sort of favorable towards Machen. They, they exchanged some friendly correspondence. But then it was Van Dyke who, was, who gave up his pew publicly, and it was put on the front page, not front page, but it was covered in the New York Times that uh, when Machen took the uh, interim pastorate there in Princeton, Van Dyke gave up his, his pew because of because Machen had doctrinal sermons, essentially was what it was about. And then when Machen stepped down from the interim pastorate, Charles Erdman took the pulpit, and Van Dyke again publicly announces in the pages of the New York Times that he's coming back to the pulpit, or coming back to his pew. Um, and Van Dyke was at Brick Church in New York, the famous Presbyterian church. Uh, he was actually, after that, he was professor of literature at Princeton University, so he was never associated with the seminary, but a very significant figure in sort of the religious culture of the end of the 20th century, and especially at Princeton. Yeah, and, Steve. Um, don't we yeah. don't we have a hymn of his in our hymnal, the Trinity hymnal? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Uh, the... I can't remember it either, but I'm, I know his name is in there. But and he was also he, he also served as a as a uh, ambassador. Is that right? Yes, he was ambassador to the Netherlands in the Wilson administration, right. and that was because of the Princeton connection, probably yeah, more assume. than anything. But um, yeah, the other Wiseman is just this terrible book where there's this. Um, figure, Artaban, who is the fourth wise man, and he's trying to track down Jesus, and he keeps missing him, and he keeps missing him, and he follows Jesus his whole life, so by the end of his life, he's like all out of his fortune, and finally he has one jewel left, and it's just as Jesus is dying, and he uses that jewel, he could go see Jesus die on the cross, but he uses that jewel to buy a girl out of slavery, and, and in that is his salvation, and you know, Jesus is dying, it's even off script, you just know it, because everything sort of gets dark. And it's total moralism, and it just depreciates the whole story of Jesus down to the way he, his sacrifice inspires you to be sacrificial, and in that is salvation. It's just pure liberalism. Yeah. Steve, I, I actually thought it was very interesting that you, were, you uh, talked about the theology of his novels, because I feel like we really live in a day where even in the Reformed churches, so many that I've talked to dismiss um, bad theology and novels by saying, well, it's a novel. And yet, I thought it was interesting that this this is a novel being written by a minister, you know, in the Presbyterian Church at the heart of the modernist controversy. I thought that was fascinating, and that, that you point out it does matter what your theology is in novels. Well, you know, that's one of the one of the sort of themes of this book is to look at things that theologians don't always look at. And so when we fast forward to the present day, I'm looking at T-shirts, and the sort of Jesus t-shirts that are out there. 
and you know theologians that's sort of beneath them they always want to talk about the theologians and analyze uh whatever on the level of what's in print or who are the academics and that type of thing but but this is where people live people buy t-shirts and they read novels and they listen to the radio and so i think some some significant analysis there can be helpful because a lot of people were reading that book the other wise man was it was a total played right into the hands of a victorian culture and they just ate that stuff up yes Uh, uh steve tell us some more about the victorian culture that actually gets fair coverage in your book yeah, there were, you know, that, there were two two extremes, uh, two extremes, right? The gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and then the yeah. manly, the manly yeah. Jesus. Can you tell us yeah, about that. Sure, um, that's actually where this book grew out of. And my wife had uh, she did her doctorate in literature, and she wrote on a Philadelphia literary magazine that was right at the essence there of Victorian culture in the 1850s in Philadelphia. And she and I had done a paper together for the Evangelical Theological Society on the Victorian Jesus. And as I thought about that paper, I thought, you know, boy, there's just a book here. And so it sort of um, worked its way into a book. But when you look at the 19th century, Jesus gets incredibly made over. And so you have him in Victorian culture, and, you know, we can think of the pictures we've seen of this, where he has sort of the high cheekbones and the flowing hair, and he looks totally like a woman uh, in these, and he's always around the children, of course, and so we're elevating the Victorian virtues of childhood innocence and motherhood. But then also in the 19th century, you've got these books with Jesus as sort of the rough and tumble on the frontier, because this Victorian culture isn't going to work on the frontier. Mm-hmm. Now we need sort of uh, Jesus as John Wayne, you know, with a rifle in his hand. Uh, and so you begin to see those depictions too. Um, and even as you get out of the 19th century, and I think as a reaction to all that Victorian uh, feminizing of Jesus, especially on the East Coast, Billy Sunday loved to go around in his crusades in the early 1900s and say that Jesus is the greatest scrapper who ever lived and that he's the manliest man. Yeah. And that if you want to be the manliest man, you'll give your life to Jesus. So it's this, you know, macho Jesus that emerges. So, uh, yeah. you find that a similar thing, um, in a neighborhood close by me, one of the churches, it's an urban church and they have pictures of Jesus and the disciples on the, on the front church in a big mural and they're all, they're all black. And, and, uh, some people will say, well, Jesus wasn't black. He was Jewish, but that's not doing much of anything different than what we do in making him look like a surfer from California, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's the same activity. We need to step back sometimes and look at what we've done uh, to Jesus and culture and, and, you know, Think about what we do. Part of the reason why I think, you know, we have a second commandment in many ways. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I think when you get outside of Reformed circles and, and the broader sort of evangelical horizons, they don't make that connection to the second commandment. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they're free and easy with these depictions of Jesus, and, and they almost celebrate the idea of contemporizing him. You know, that makes it more personal and more real. Right. Relevant for this, this culture. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah, you know, we sort of rip him out like a hip-hop gospel. Uh, you know, we sort of rip him out of his context and sort of make him, we, we forget the whole time and space dimension to the incarnation and just make him as uh, look like as much like me as possible. Now, um, I don't want to jump too far ahead in your book, but speaking about... Uh, Christian merchandise, etc. Do you think there's any tie to? <laughs> do you think there's any tie to the abstracting of the message? Like liberalism wants to reduce Christianity to just a moral example. That Jesus is this idea or this man who had a really powerful religious feeling. And then, do you think that uh, that ties in? You know, now maybe fifty, sixty, seventy years later, uh, with the merchandising of Christianity, where we want to have. Uh, you know, we don't have to have an historical Jesus, so to speak. Uh, we can we can reduce it down to merchandise that gives us a feeling. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's a great observation. And I think, you know, the whole book is a story of sort of strange bedfellows because you have all these people from very different contexts or even very different theological agendas. They're aware or unaware, and they end up with the same exact result of Jesus. And the, I think what it all stems from is this sort of inability to take Jesus as he comes to us in the Gospels, because he's a fairly complex figure. You know, just even when you stop and think about how complex deity and humanity is, that's part of the ultimate 
complexity. But you, know, you have Jesus who is a friend of sinners, and you have Jesus who is blessing the children. So you clearly have those episodes in there. But you also have another Jesus who is um, pronouncing judgment. And you know, we, we see these sort of aspects of Jesus we're comfortable with, and then we see these other aspects, and what we end up doing is just ignoring them, and we end up with, an, with a distorted Jesus. Last right. summer, I, I was thinking of that in relation to, you speak of merchandise, and it seems like the merchandise uh, is, not, is not inclined to the right or to the left. Uh, you see it both ways in American culture, um, both in, in liberalism and in conservatism. I, I thought of last summer on family vacation driving down the freeway in New Jersey and uh, passing a bumper sticker that said, um, Who would Jesus torture? You know, this is when the whole waterboarding thing was was the you know the, the topic of discussion, and I thought, what an what an interesting way to bring Jesus right into you know, New York Times headlines about <laughs> about you know waterboarding at Catanamo Bay, and uh, so it's just interesting how how Jesus sort of suits the need of the moment, uh, in context quite far removed from his own. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right, and and you do see it on both sides, you know, and. And interesting, when you think about this too, what I found interesting was I've gotten a few, quite a few letters actually from from Roman Catholics who had read the book or picked up the book somewhere. And the letter all sort of has this uh, thrust to it. If you think evangelicals are bad, <laughs> you should look at Roman Catholic merchandise and what it does to Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's this sort of thing that, that you find in uh, Roman Catholicism, the, the sort of Protestant mainline the evangelical right, you know, you, the, the sort of religious right, conservatives, you really do find it in uh, many different, uh, many different places. So it's a human thing, yep. really. Right? Yeah, it's yeah, human nature. It, yeah, I think it all stems from that because you can even find it historically. You know, um, Yaroslav Pelikan had done that book, Christ Through the Centuries, mm-hmm. and um, he wasn't as concerned with with finding fault as much as he was just doing a historical analysis. But his book looks at how this was done in various sectors of medieval culture. It was really, it was clearly done in the Renaissance era with the paintings um, and, and and even in the Reformation era with some of the woodcuts that were put in in the Bible, uh, in the different Bibles that were, were produced. So it's not, it's even, a, it's it's beyond us, unfortunately, as well. Could I ask, Steve, let me ask a question uh, since you bring up the medieval age, and this is and this is a question that is the line can be somewhat uh, blurry on this. What is what is the difference between, or is there a difference between uh, turning Jesus into merchandise and uh, you know what historically we think of as Christian art? Um, hey. And I don't mean cheap cheap Christian no. art on T-shirts, but in terms of in terms of the the uh, aesthetic beauty of of churches and of pane glass and, and these sort of stained glass and all these, uh, how would you relate those things? Hmm. Oh, that's a fascinating question. I think the, well, you know, some of the stained glass goes back to the whole Gregory quote. Uh, hmm. I can't remember it exactly, but you know, the idea that if, if you have an illiterate culture, they're going to at least be given presented with the biblical story in, and images and pictures. Right. And so that's sort of the famous quote used when, when the discussion turns to um, stained glass and I- icons and so forth. So I think there is that element in a medieval culture because you have, the, um, you have an underlying context of an illiteracy, and so images and pictures play differently. Um, I think what's missing, especially in the, uh, in the trinket stuff, is the aesthetic. But you could actually make the case. And maybe it's kitsch. <laughs> Much of it. Case that, that that's missing in just most of American culture and most of American evangelical culture. When you look at you know, how concerned are we about architecture or how concerned are we about making music that has a perennial uh, sort of um, uh, a beauty aspect to it or art that is beautiful and not just sort of commercialized. Um, so I think in many ways there's a, there's, a, there's a sharp distinction between what passes for it today. But I'm, you know, that's that's sort of out of my area. I, I need to ask my artist friends what they think about. It. <laughs> Great question. Or uh, Derek Thomas. Well, you know, I was I was thinking of ways that we could uh, that we could commend uh, Derek's peculiar uh, tastes, but I'm at a loss. 
<laughs> well, we'll just have to let that slide. Yeah, we're in trouble now, you know. <laughs> he, he, he seemed to enjoy our last uh, our last bit on him, and he posts. I I thought it was so funny, uh, not to derail us, but that he posted that picture of him with BB King up on Reformation Twenty One after our interview with you. Right. Are we going to see pictures of Derek in front of stained glass? <laughs> You know, Derek See, is that, very self-conscious, and uh, he he needs to be defending himself, I guess, for whatever reason. So yeah, I'm sure he'll have some, some uh, maybe he'll be in a, a medieval monastery or something. I don't know. We'll have to see what he comes up with. <laughs> well, Nick, you had a you had a question. Uh... Yeah, I, I wanted to know if Derek Thomas was involved in the Jesus People movement. <laughs> 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 because I think he no, was no, no, the Welsh that director was... actually. Now that I, I, I he, he was <laughs> he was the publicist for the Resurrection Band. Uh, actually, I thought I thought the Jesus on vinyl was the best chapter in your book, and that might show how shallow and American I am. But um, I really I really thought the way you focused on the history and the even the. Um, Evolving nature of the Jesus People movement was fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting uh, story, you know. I think so. Well, yeah, tell how, us how more much about impact, it. Yeah. How much impact did this have? Do you think? I mean, it, it sounds like this had a huge impact on American culture. Well, you know, I look at it, and and sort of a lot of the students that I have, and um, the, the the whole Christian music world is very influential, and I think if we were to step out of sort of reform circles and look at the broader American evangelical circles, they listen to this stuff a lot. And I think they're, what is shaping their world, sort of the phrases they give and uh, the, the, the sort of initial interpretations they have of events comes from the lyrics of the songs they listen to. And I think that that's also very true of just American culture of the 20th and 21st century. Music is a significant part of understanding, I think, American culture and American pop culture. But when you go back to uh, the early movements, uh, especially the early Jesus movement, for one thing, it's just a fascinating story. I mean, these guys were all hippies, and they were all on drugs. They were all great musicians, and they all get converted in 1970, and they become great musicians, Christian musicians. You know, Randy Stonehill and Larry Norman and second chapter of Acts. You know, this Petra, this goes way back uh, to the 70s. Pat Boone was a significant figure in all of that and right. encouraging. In fact, um, he, he would tell how most of these Christian artists were baptized in Pat Boone's pool. <laughs> wow. And I, I actually think Derek Thomas was officiating now that I... Now that... <laughs> hey, uh, was, yes, was Derek yes. wearing white buck shoes and a, a white belt when he did that? <laughs> I think so. I think, you know, he and Pat Boone are pretty close. Um, <laughs> but, um, but then this, this thing becomes a multi-million dollar industry of CCM, contemporary Christian music, right. with channels and groups and festivals and uh, media outlets, yep. and magazines. Now, it's a now huge you should, force. Yeah, you should note that some of us who are, I think, pretty reformed still listen to some contemporary Christian music. And there, uh, there, yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't want to discredit the whole industry. I think there's some good stuff out there. Sure, there's some lousy um, stuff too. But there's just some, and it, and it's not. I don't know if it's so much that it's it's bad theology. It's just no theology. It's just well, theologically right, vacuous. Right. I was listening to an interview with Derek Webb, who's a pretty well-known yeah. Christian musician. Uh, yeah, I really enjoy his music, but he was uh, speaking that about the his his experience in Nashville, and he has several friends apparently who were unbelievers, but who were making a good living writing Christian music. Oh, uh, well. You know, and they knew the formula. They knew the kind of words to put into the music, and uh, they were they were writing songs and making money. And they they didn't care two, two bits about Christianity, you know. It was just, they were able to do it, though. That's That, that, that goes to show yeah. uh, the state of the industry, and we don't want to knock it all. Um, clearly, there is good music out there, but but still... You know, it's one of the one of the things I try to do in the book is um, is look at outsiders' critiques of evangelicalism, and a sort of uh, you know it's sort of painful to see so, those criticisms, but I think it makes us aware of things we otherwise don't always want to see. 
And uh, one of the funniest along these lines, there was a King of the Hill episode, uh, Christian music, and uh, the sort of lead of that show, uh, Hank, uh, says um, (laughs) that the the niece, I think, that lives with him is into Christian music or Christian rock. And he goes, I forget the, I wish I could have the exact quote to you, but it's something like um, Christian rock uh, doesn't make Christianity sound better or something it's an insult to rock yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) but it's just you know it shows us that outsiders even look at this and ask themselves what are you doing you know and and i think at that point we need to pay attention right now steve steve there is that account in your book of you walking out with the entourage with dc talk out of the hotel (laughs) did did you did you get yes did you get to sign any autographs or (laughs) Those are my favorite two paragraphs in the whole book, and it actually relates, <laughs> it actually relates to Westminster Bookstore because yeah. at the time Steve Vanderhill was the manager, and I went with Steve out to uh, the Christian Booksellers Association. It since has changed its name to Expo or something like that because nobody sells books anymore. So it used to be the Christian Booksellers Association, and it was at the Anaheim Convention Center. And we were staying on the same floor with DC Talk. And this was when they just came out. They were really huge uh, then. And so, as I say in the book, I would time my leaving of my hotel room when they would leave, (laughs) you know, so that I could act like I was in their entourage. So I was just a few steps behind them. I think they got a little suspicious when, like, I kept showing up on the elevator every time they were on the elevator. So... (laughs) That is great. Now, you were also mistaken for being in Striper at one point, right? <laughs> well, not quite, uh, but I did have a great conversation with them. Did I, I think I, did I tell you guys that story last time, I think? I think so, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. yes It'll be interesting to see, you, to see you in spandex. Well, you know, I'm sort of like the Forrest Gump of uh, Christian rock. <laughs> if you go back and look, I'm there. I'm just sort of pasted in. <laughs> the conspicuous figure, the third drummer. <laughs> hey, uh, Steve, is there anybody um, in your book who's gotten Jesus right? Well, Correctly, course, I should say? Yeah, of course. You know, we. Uh, I start off with Edward Taylor who is this great Puritan minister poet who um, was really relatively unknown in his time. He did have a couple poems published, but um, by and large was unknown. He thought his poetry wasn't that good. He boxed it up and gave specific instructions that it never be published. And uh, his heirs rightfully obeyed, but they stuck it in the Rare Books uh, Museum at Yale. And in the 1920s or so, a literary student was down there, literature student was down there, looking around for a Ph.D. topic and came across this shoebox of unpublished poetry by Edward Taylor, and he published it. <laughs> Great stuff. And uh, he would write these, <laughs> he would write these um, poems like the night before uh, uh, communion. And there were just these wonderful reflections on Christ, very theologically rich, but also uh, just very warm and sort of the best of Puritan devotion. And so to me, he's a good model that you don't have to sacrifice orthodoxy and theological rigor for what American evangelicals absolutely prize, the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, he, he had it. Um, so he's a hero. Of course, Machen emerges as a hero right, right. in the story. And then the other hero is the guy who owned uh, a uh, Jesus miniature golf course and decided to close it. So I think that would qualify as a hero too so he's up there with Machen very good that really tickled James that's good no that's good I, I like Machen and the miniature golf course guy well, there's uh, one more shoulder to shoulder that's I think great. that I could probably sequester uh, Daryl Hart to become an investor in such an endeavor oh that would be great there's one more hero in the book that I've got to mention and that is Carly Bobby now Carly Bobby yes is, yes is the movie character wife of Ricky Bobby who, of course, is Will Ferrell. Yeah. And in the baby, the prayer to baby Jesus, yeah. Ricky Bobby and Carly Bobby get into this great theological debate, mm. and uh, she informs Ricky that Jesus grew up, that he wasn't just a tiny little baby. So uh, Carly Bobby, I think, gets it. So she, she's a hero, too. Yeah. You know, Steve, Steve, I, I have to confess, I preached on Sunday, uh, and it was the last minute because uh, James Cassidy was sick. Uh, 
and I had I picked out a sermon I hadn't preached in a long time, and it had nothing to do with the Christmas season. So I I added a little bit at the beginning that was not in my sermon about how uh, there's the danger uh, that Christians face in this season of leaving Jesus in the manger. Yeah, yeah. And I made reference to Talladega Nights without without mentioning what the movie was. I I happened to say, by the way, if you think this is a you know a, an impossibility, let me point out to you that in a in a movie recently, there was a discussion around the dinner table about which Jesus we should pray to, the baby Jesus who's warm and cuddly, or a grown-up Jesus. And so, that well, that was my way of tying my message, which had nothing to do with Christmas, in, into the <laughs> Christmas season. So, yeah, that's a, a very interesting scene, isn't it, in, the, in that movie? Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's great. And, and probably from reading your book is why I remember, because the movie I, I watched years ago probably yeah. was... It, forgotten you know now steve did are there different uh roads or uh paths of historical development between you know uh, evangelicalism and neo-evangelicalism versus uh the reform side of things have they both arrived at the same place or are there still some significant differences between those various traditions yeah you know this is a great question and it was one i sort of wrestled with in in terms of not necessarily how to put the book together, but how to sort of get the overall story. Because one of the stories that's typically told, and I think there's some truth to it, is the so-called declension thesis of American theology. And so the idea is that the Puritans had it together, and they were confessional and pristine and orthodox. And then through a series of events, most notably, of course, Second Great Awakening and Jacksonian democracy, uh, Charles Finney sort of being the embodiment of that, you begin the decline of that. And then it just moves into the Moody's in the 20th century, and then the fundamentalist modernist controversy further marginalizes the orthodox voice. And then evangelicalism emerges, but not necessarily a theological, uh, rich theological center of evangelicalism. So so that's sort of the standard thesis, the the declension thesis of getting the American Christianity story. Mm -hmm. But I'm not so sure. I mean, to me... I think there's a lot of merit to the declension thesis. And in many ways, I try to say the Puritans were a good model for us. Not a perfect model, but a good model for us. And recovering them wouldn't hurt. But uh, to me, the story's a little bit more complex. I, I don't know if it's more like spokes on a wheel, because there are clearly trajectories that, that carry much of Puritanism. I mean, you see, you see sort of remnants, but even stronger than remnants all the way throughout. And then, like, you look at the current sort of reformed or confessional resurgence that's taking place. Um, you know, the whole young, restless, and reformed sort of right. from Colin Hansen. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a story of declension or as much a story of um, sort of multiple trajectories, and they're all sort of spinning off, and sometimes they get things right and sometimes they don't. But, but that was one of the hardest things for me to try to put this whole thing together and sort of map it all out. Um, and I think it's more complex than, than the, just the simple declension thesis would lead us to. Well, Steve, I wanted to ask you, uh, this is kind of a silly question, but what do you think is worse, Harry Emerson Fosdick's theology or hookers for Jesus? <laughs> because you mentioned both, and they seem both pretty offensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that goes back to... Uh, should we explain the context, maybe? Of yeah, maybe that would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, do have, I do have a job that I want to keep, so maybe I should, uh, you know, explain this. Um, that goes back to uh, one of the very fringe, very, very fringe groups of the Jesus people. And um, they had this idea of using women to get men to come into Christianity, and and the idea was talking about hooking for Jesus and uh, using women and sex to to you know evangelize. So that but that was a very fringe group, and and I think we need to acknowledge the sort of radical nature of that. But you know the thing is, it, we talk about Fosdick as the sort of historical figure. The truth is that guy wielded an incredible amount of influence. You know his sermons were printed on the. Uh, New York Times on Mondays, after he preached them on Sundays. When he went on the right. radio, he was listened to all across the country by hundreds of mm -hmm. thousands of people. Um, his books were in everybody's library. 
Um, mm. And uh, he just wielded uh, an immense influence. Of course, he was financially backed by Rockefeller. And right, which was, I thought was fascinating. Yeah, you know, that's one of the stories that often doesn't get told, to sort of follow the money <laughs> kind of thing. One funny thing, though, um, Rockefeller did build him a church, apparently, and it, and it was attended by several, many, many wealthy people. And he wanted to yeah, preach to the poor people and ask for another church in a different neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Riverside Cathedral, which is still there, the big cathedral and Riverside Church. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, that, that doesn't quite fit. Because I think, you know, Fosdick, Fosdick, too, was an interesting person. And, you know, he had some interesting ideas. Theologically, he was unorthodox. And he definitely knew what he was doing, I think. He wasn't, he was, he was purposeful, I think, in a lot of what he was doing. But, um, but he did have some sensibilities about him, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, an interesting story. You know, I own a little book by Fosdick called The Sayings of Jesus, where he cut out all yeah. the supernatural and right. did exactly what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible, just speaking yeah, about connections and similarities, and yeah. it's very interesting. Yeah, you know, his that book, uh, and that's interesting you mentioned that, because it, it was, it was precisely what Jefferson did. And um, his book, The Man from Nazareth, was a very popular book at the time. And just the title even clues you into what he's up to. Fosdick, mm. you know, Fosdick actually thought that he would do the church's service by stressing the humanity of Jesus. Because his idea was that Jesus ultimately was inspiration. And when we see him as the perfect model, that's why I titled that chapter Hero for the Modern World, because Fosdick really thought Jesus was the true hero, and he, he was a hero that was so much like us that we could be heroes too. And that's what salvation was for Fosdick. That's what the cross meant. The cross just meant you know, an example of heroic deeds. Uh, and, and for many people in the 20th century, that's, that's what they think of Jesus. So where do we go from here? Steve, uh, that's a really difficult question, but if we're in this state, how how do we educate our, our people in our congregation, or how do we encourage and build up the church to awake from its slumber of, uh, of having formed Jesus in our own image? In the last uh, couple pages of the book, I, I take a swipe, and, and what I have is an epilogue. Um, I take a swipe at, at trying to answer some of you know, because the analysis is one thing, um, and really anybody can do it. It's a great story to tell. But but when we think about what what this matters for us, that's such a great question. I came away with a couple of conclusions. Uh, one was that we've just got to get away from this idea of of um, a sort of narrow focus of Jesus. So whether it's I mean, to me, Jesus is like, it's like going up to a huge mirror, and the huge mirror is going to reflect all kinds of things, and you just focus in on one piece of the mirror. You know, Jesus is my friend, or Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that becomes everything for us. And it's really easy to do that. So I think it's asking ourselves to be self-aware of what we're doing with Jesus, and then asking, are we being true to him? I, I think that's very helpful, just to do as an exercise, because we can do it in our own thinking. I think the second mm-hmm. thing is a recovery of the confessions and the creeds. Um, you know, the Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, they really are helpful guardrails. And, and I think the more we can educate our children, you know, you, you look at the Christian ed and a lot of American evangelicalism, and you know, they're sitting there watching Veggie Tales for their, for their education in churches. Right. And, you know, and, and you look at the Bible stories, you know, we do a great job. Jesus is your friend and, and all but how are we teaching that Jesus is God? And I know that's a difficult concept, but that's what is a, it's sort of the beauty of the creed. You've got to just know it before you can begin to understand it. And so I don't think we should shrink away from teaching the creeds, especially to our children, because um, I think you know, we just make assumptions that they're going to catch in Christ, a uh, Orthodox Christology. They're not. Uh, they're they're going to distort them. So, so you know, having a sort of a creed-based approach to Jesus, um, I think, helps us get some guardrails there. And then just being aware of what we do with Jesus. And and I, I think the other thing here is we've got to let uh, get back to the instead of Jesus made in America, it's Jesus made in Scripture. Yeah. You know, and and see what uh, there's this great book. I forget the author. Maybe you guys saw it. Uh, 
it's sort of a critique of the emergent sort of impulses. Um, living like Jesus isn't enough. Mm. And, you know, the thesis of that book is that the whole idea of imitating Jesus, which has been this perennial impulse in church history, isn't enough. We need to have a doctrine of Jesus. We need to affirm a set of beliefs. And we can slip into that idea of, of uh, living like Jesus without having a set of beliefs that we affirm and constantly keep in front of us. So I think that's part of the challenge. Excellent. Just along that line, uh, I mean, that reminded me of Scott Clark's recent book, Recovering the Reformed Confession. And we've been talking about this yeah. recently, uh, Ligon Duncan's uh, The Westminster Confession in the 21st Century. Um, and so there, there, there have been, there's been some attention uh, to this. I'd also uh, uh, want to point people over to uh, the White Horse Inn, who's been running a whole series on Christless Christianity, and you can pick up Michael Horton's new book by that same title as well. And Steve, I believe you were on there a little while ago, weren't you? Yes, we did the uh, uh, Jesus book a, a, a little bit back mm-hmm. week, so yeah, it was on there. And you're right, I should have mentioned his book, because I think his Priceless Christianity is another great read that just alerts us to these things. Camden, I also want to recommend Jeff's series on the atonement over at Ref 21 because, you know, ultimately the Jesus as example, Jesus as savior issue comes down to his natures and his work. So, um, Who? That, no. you know, so I'm giving you Jesus, you Jeff, it's Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, my feeling has always been that, that, uh, of course, uh, the Apostle Peter does tell us that we are to follow Christ's example, but why would you do that if he isn't Lord, if he isn't God? Right. Right. right? What would be the point of it? If he's just another human being, he's just he's no better than Socrates or or Aristotle or, or Confucius or, you know, any other great thinker in the world. You know, you follow him because he's he's the son of God. Well, this anyway. has been an excellent discussion, Steve. Yeah. We thank you for coming back, and you're welcome anytime. We always have fun speaking with you. Oh, you guys are great. It's, it's been my pleasure. Oh, good. And uh, we want to also mention a few of uh, Steve's other books. You can pick up the, uh, the Reformation, How a Monk in a Mallet Changed the World, also An Absolute Sort of Certainty, The Holy Spirit and the Apologetics of Jonathan Edwards, uh, several more. Uh, why don't you visit WTSbooks.com? You can get these books at a really good price. And Jesus Made in America, of course, they have uh, for... 30-some percent off. It's uh, just about $13. So you grab that and read that, and uh, you'd be very informed. Uh, We want to point everyone back to the website. You can visit reformedforum.org. You can find out information about our other programs. You can subscribe to the Reformed Media Review. You can also keep track of everything that's going on on the web. Uh, If you want to get a hold of us, you can visit reformedforum.org slash contact, or just email us at mail at reformedforum.org. We thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. Christ the Center.